Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, I am honored to be sharing with you my interview with Osprey Oriel Lake, the author of the new book, The Story is in Our Bones, How Worldviews and Climate Justice Can Remake a World in Crisis. Osprey is the founder and executive director of WeCan, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. Osprey is also the author of the book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Osprey works nationally and internationally with grassroots groups, indigenous leaders, policymakers, and scientists to promote climate justice. The Story is in Our Bones is her second book, and what a book it is. Hers is a voice that speaks to the moment, a voice of our time. And she calls to all of us to try to work together to make our collective path forward a united and rewarding one. And she shares with us ways to make it happen. Here is my conversation with Osprey Oriel Lake. Osprey, thank you for joining me today on Nature Revisited. Thank you so much for inviting me. So welcome and thank you for writing this important book. So let's start by speaking of story. Can we start by learning a bit of your story and the journey that led you to write this book? First of all, thank you for your very generous words. Along with with many people globally, I've really committed my life's work to addressing the dire circumstances that we face from social and ecological crises and beyond. I think the term polycrisis has come into our vernacular now, and I think it's, it's a good term. And working to envision and build a healthy and equitable world that we know is possible. And I think that this moment calls for deep systemic change that really entails a metamorphic shift in worldview. What I mean by this is literally how we understand the world on a relationship and responsibility to the web of life and to one another. I think many of us are in the midst of the great task of changing who we are and how we interact with the land, with other communities. So what brought me to this book is really understanding that we needed to fundamentally address how we see the world. And the book is really an invitation to bring our collective learning together so that we can attempt to coherently, with necessary speed, how we can really survive and thrive in this time of these interlocking crises. And yeah, so I approach the book in a way of looking at the story, how we're in a time of great peril, but also a time of great promise, depending on on how we move forward. An important part of your story is the creation of the organization We Can, Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. 
Can you share how and when you started We Can and the work that it is doing? Before I began the organization, I was actually doing artwork with similar things that are in the book about our relationship to nature and culture and history and ancestry and stories. The the creation of We Can really came about in many ways. I've I've always been involved in activism. I grew up in Mendocino, was exposed early on to protection of the redwood forest there because of all the logging that had been going on and is still going on. That was very near and dear to my heart. The big moment with We Can came when there were the big climate talks in 2009 in Copenhagen, and there was a lot of hope that there would be a change around global climate policy. The change that I had really hoped to see did not happen. And I was walking in the redwood trees, and I just had my own epiphany. We all have these different moments in our life that I needed to stop everything I was doing and put all of my focus on what I was going to do around the climate crisis. I made this huge pivot from doing my artwork, really began on this journey of what could I do. Some of the research that I immediately did is to learn how actually there's a a big relationship between women's leadership and addressing environmental issues, including climate, and the role of women in on-the-ground solutions all the way up to policy-level decisions. And just to give folks a a little bit of an example, there's something called the Women's Political Empowerment Index. There's been a really deep study that shows that if you just have one degree rise in Women's Political Empowerment Index in any country in the world, you get 11.51% drop in carbon emission reductions. Just the change in women's role in society and leadership and political office has a huge effect on carbon emission reductions. There's so much improvement in communities economically and socially with women's leadership. This is not to say that there isn't a role, of course, for women and men and people across the gender spectrum, all of us. The reason I started the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network is because I wanted to really find what would be the most powerful intervention that I could have. And I really saw that there needed to be tremendous growth in in centering women's leadership and decision-making processes on-the-ground programs and projects, reforestation, protecting forests, all of it, and what they were already doing and how it needed to be really elevated and supported. And so that's how the organization began. And then I would just say, to kind of wrap up the question, is that I think it's really important that we have these on-the-ground programs, but at the same time, we need to think short-term and long-term. So a lot of the things that we're doing every day are to stop a lot of harm from happening in communities and bring about really positive change at a very local and national level and global level. But it's also important to look at root causes because no matter how much we do in terms of our external activities, if we don't actually address the root causes of how we got into this poly crisis, which I look at as colonization, racism, patriarchy, and capitalism or extractive economies, If we don't actually address these root causes, then we're just going to continue to perpetuate the violence against the earth and the violence against each other. What inspired the title of your book, The Story is in Our Bones? And what is its meaning? Oh, good question. The story is in our bones, how worldviews, 
and climate justice can remake a world in crisis, is really meant to remind us of our inherent earth lineage as part of the web of life. You know, many of us now live in cities and circumstances that can pull us away from direct memory of who we are with the land. And yet I believe we can still draw upon our inner knowing, no matter how dormant that is. I find that, you know, when I talk to a lot of people, we can lucidly, but sometimes not with great explanation, know things if we're listening really deeply. Because I think inside of us, designed by nature, there's a way of keeping alive things that we've forgotten, like our connection to the land. The stories of who we are are in our bones, calling to our ancestral memories. I think they're there waiting to be retrieved and spoken, sung to the people in the land once again. And quite literally inside our bones is life-giving marrow, which makes the components of our blood that we need to survive and is also the carrier of our DNA. And I think, I think that the bones are a place of life, of memory and world-making. And I think right now we're in a place where we very much need to remember who we are and remake our world by relearning and reweaving our earth-based stories. And so I really love this idea that the story is in our bones and that we're retrieving it, recalling it, and also that it's inside of us. The subtitle, How World Views and Climate Justice Can Remake a World in Crisis. What is a worldview? Well, worldview is a, a really vast topic. It's really important to discuss right now. It's quite huge in scope. It has dramatic differences depending on culture, environment, ancestry, mythology, epistemology, and, and so much more. After decades of working in social and environmental movements, I continually circle back to this core entry point of how things transform, which to me is connected to our worldviews. And I think without examining worldviews, I don't think we can actually enact the level of imagination, relationships, and ethics that are now needed. So worldviews really express our fundamental nature of a particular culture, how it operates and constructs perceptions and relationships. The worldviews influence who we are and how we behave, our dreams, our relationship to the web of life. If we can't really talk about those foundational ideas about who we are and what we think, I think it's really difficult to have a discourse around political and social change. So I think it's absolutely essential if we're going to transform and heal our world, we also need to know how we view the world. So how are worldviews a portal to our future? What I'm interested in exploring is the current dominant social mindsets or worldviews. As I mentioned earlier, we're looking at the constructs of colonization or capitalism or patriarchy or racism. These are, are not healthy soil to build a healthy society in the world that I feel many of us long for. So understanding worldviews is vital to entering new thresholds of living and understanding. There are worldviews that need radical dismantling and reimagining, such as the ones that we were just describing, like our economic structures based on 
extractivism. Other worldviews actually need to be remembered or rescued. You know, when I'm looking at going back to our pre-patriarchal or pre-colonized ways of thinking, I think there's worldviews of looking at the earth as animate, as alive, that the rivers are alive, the mountains are alive. That worldview of a living earth is something I think that we need to remember and rescue from modern ways of thinking about the natural world in terms of just resources or how much financial value it has. Right now, there are networks of change makers, systems thinkers, writers, activists, artists from every background who are recognizing the need for systemic change. As an example, while installing solar panels and deploying wind turbines and recycling and implementing energy efficiency are are very real solutions and absolutely paramount. I spend a great deal of my day dealing with solutions just like this. But I also know they alone can't address the deep layers of societal evolution that this moment demands. A lot of us are striving in our work to transform oppressive systems and processes into beneficial, thriving cultural activities and projects that really reflect a different worldview. And we're trying to disentangle ourselves from a colonial and patriarchal stronghold in this new structure we really are looking at that there can't be any throwaway people, throwaway lands, throwaway species. We've life-enhancing worldviews and new ways of being and thinking into our activities and our programs. The core focus is a transition from an extractivist paradigm of exploitation and hyper-individualism and supremacy to one that is relational and earth-conscious one that's understanding of respect and living in reciprocity with nature and restoration and reparations. And so this is the shift that we're really looking at. So why are stories so important? And what is original instructions? I really want to honor Indigenous peoples in my response here because I think right now some of our most profound leaders and teachers are indigenous peoples from all over the world who have maintained healthy and strong and intact relationship and code of conduct with Mother Earth. You know, our rich instructions are connected to determining and shaping cultural values, identities, and worldviews. As an example, in indigenous and traditional cultures around the world, they are carrying original instructions which offer teachings and guidelines about how to live in a healthy relationship with the natural world and to respect the natural laws of the earth. As I've learned from indigenous people and also trying to trace my own ancestry, because I think at one time we all had these original instructions, these, these teachings and instructions are in the form of songs and stories and ceremonies and dances. They're directly gifted to people from nature. So, for example, some instructions show how when to collect plants from a region in an ecologically bounced way so as not to over-harvest or how to hunt animals so that a herd is culled in a regenerative manner. I've also learned a lot about original instructions and how they carry warnings about agreements with nature that humans really need to maintain to keep balance between humans and the non-human world. So I think it's really important to recognize also that the nuances of original instructions are most often specific to a place because life-enhancing relationships between nature and humans are primarily informed by a specific region and ecosystem. 80% of all the biodiversity left on Earth at this time exists in the territory 
or lands maintained by Indigenous peoples. And this is in great part due to the respect and care that Indigenous peoples have for the sacred living systems of life, their commitment to the seventh generation thinking. All of these things are connected to original instructions that they've carried and maintained. And I think this is also why it's imperative that all of us participate in protecting and defending Indigenous peoples' rights, their sovereignties and ways of life, to respect their human rights and dignity. It's also important for all of our survival because we can readily see that the dominant culture has really strayed away from those original instructions and right relationships with nature. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous peoples about this, but also to really think about how we can regenerate these original instructions again, because they're so key to understanding how we can live in harmony with nature. Just how important is it that we regain a connection with the feminine principles and the earth goddess in our culture? And how do you see that happening? One of the main root causes of the crisis we're in is the fact of patriarchal institutions, including patriarchal religions, that really are a form of colonization of older earth-based ways of knowing and knowledge and spiritualities. This imbalance has been devastating to humanity. It's not about putting men down or gods down, but about lifting up women and lifting up the goddess and creating balance again. Not about throwing away religions. It's about renewing them, brought back to the center fire of the people for regeneration and reconfiguring. Within this context, I think it's also about many of us reaching back to our ancestors, whoever they are, to when they were an earth-based culture and had balance between the feminine and masculine principle. But our dominant society has really lost that story of earth as mother and as a relative, as a living being. We really need to retrieve that understanding and to lift up women and to lift up the mother goddess again for balance. Deep within our own embodied assemblage as humans, exists the forgotten story threads of the wisdom of our earth-loving ancestors. Many people agree that moving forward, what is needed is some major cultural shifts in our relationship to the earth, to the planet. What are some of those cultural shifts that you think we need to make? The cultural shifts need to come from understanding that we need to simultaneously look to the root causes of a lot of the polycrises that we face right now and understand them and have a lot more depth. If we're looking at cultural changes, we need to have a really deep analysis of where we've been and how these things happened, which I go into great depth in my book. And that then, when we begin to, to understand those things and put them into the compost pile, if you will, metabolize them and have them be composted and create soil that comes out of those understandings and wrestling and uncomfortable conversations and looking inward, that we will have a much better opportunity to build the healthy and equitable world that we want really key to the level of cultural shift and also really listening in a very practical way to those who have most not been listened to, those that have been silent, 
that means listening to indigenous peoples, listening to our black sisters and brothers, listening to the LGBTQ community, listening to all the different peoples of the world, black, brown, indigenous, everyone who has been marginalized. It also means listening to nature and the voice of nature, to the forest, the trees, the way the Mother Earth is crawling out in her droughts and floods, trying to rebalance herself. What is she telling us? As so many people in a lot of global movements say, you know, go to the source where the hurt is the most, because that is where we're going to find out where our solutions are with the people and the lands that are in most harm's way, who have most experience with having to survive and thrive under incredible hardship and conditions. That is where we're going to find the strongest leadership and knowledge. And I think that's a very important part to this cultural shift. So why is it so important that we have a sense of things sacred? And why is ceremony also so important? One of the things that has been the result of a lot of the dominant culture view of nature is not seeing the earth as a living being, seeing nature as a resource financially, that trees are how much board feet, and even the fact that we, we sell water. All of these things have really separated us from the holiness of the land, the sacredness of the land, the sacredness of all life, the sacredness of each other. Without that, it is extremely difficult for us to have the healing and reciprocity practices that we really need to have. Ceremony is a way to really experience that in an embodied way. Ceremony can mean lots of things to lots of different people. I would say the most important thing is that it creates a special space where we can experience the sacredness of, of life and the web of life. And that when we have that experience in our bodies, I do believe that we will act in better conduct with each other and with the land. Ceremony and having a sense of all life being sacred can really help remind us of our place as nature, not, not separate from nature. So how has capitalism and colonialism been so destructive when it comes to our relationship with the land? Capitalism is not only an economic system, but also a worldview that commodifies everything, including humans and natural resources. Uh, I like to say more accurately, our plant, animal, and mineral relatives. It's the same avaricious appetite which is found in colonialism. It's really the foundation of colonialism. I think they're very interrelated. And if you look back through history and dig down to discover the reasons for colonial invasions and violence, we'll see that nearly every instance of exploitation concern access to resources or the desire for free or cheap forced labor. Egregious oppressions of the world can be traced to some people wanting to possess and exploit other people and lands, often with white supremacy as the central lever. Capitalism has always depended on colonization, exploitation, slavery, cheap labor, the plundering of, of the forest, the water, the land. The danger of the colonial capitalist system, of the mainstream culture, coupled with its ingrained dominion over nature worldview, have been central catalysts of our climate, racism, and environmental emergencies. 
So this is a really toxic paradigm that really needs to be dismantled and composted completely into new trajectory. We need to stop the extractivist economy and respect nature. And some of this looks like cutting back on consumerism, changes in our economic system. Like I like to look at Bhutan as an example that has the gross happiness indicator versus GDP. Um, I think we really need to get really open-minded about transformative change. I think we also need to really look at how we dismantle this idea of the commodification of nature and also material growth, endless material growth on a finite planet. And I love something that Kali Terena said. She's an indigenous woman from the Terena Nation, Brazil. She was at one of the climate talks that we attended. She made the statement that colonialism caused climate change and our rights and traditional knowledge are the solution. And she was referring to indigenous rights. And she said indigenous rights and traditional rights are the solution. And some people really rebuffed this assertion about colonialism as an overstated claim. It really isn't. So this issue of uh, colonization is something that we really need to, to continue to deconstruct because it has wreaked so much havoc on indigenous people's frontline communities and the land. Speaking of rights, share with us the idea of the rights of nature and how it is becoming more and more accepted. This is a topic really that excites me as well. Right now, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, we sit on the steering committee of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature. And it's just been amazing and thrilling to see how rights of nature and other forms of earth jurisprudence or earth philosophies are now the fastest growing environmental movements in the world. And this was stated by the current UN Secretary General. And it, it really aspires to recognize nature legally and culturally as a rights-bearing entity. Exciting because it really offers a long-term systemic solution to interlocking crises, to understanding and practicing that humans are just one part of the sacred ecological systems of life. And again, I would just honor, again, here indigenous peoples because I think a lot of the ancient headwaters from which rights of nature, the rights of nature movement was born really comes from indigenous wisdom. And right now, a primary impediment to us living differently with nature exists within our current legal frameworks. They need to be challenged and changed. Uh, right now, most countries have environmental laws, but they're clearly not working or we wouldn't be, you know, uh, destroying the earth like we are. Rights of nature has the potential to not only help prevent some of the worst effects of climate change and uh, ecological devastation, but really help restore humans as a human beneficial species to the planet. Environmental lawyers and a lot of visionary thinkers, indigenous leaders and activists globally have been developing this, this idea of rights of nature approach, which is a structure of law that recognizes that, you know, our living plant has rights. It recognizes the inherent meaning that we were talking about earlier of, of sacredness, of the value of the natural world and not reducing nature to economic value only it needs to be put in the same framework as human rights. We, we need the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Nature and putting Mother Earth right into the center of what we need to be valuing and respecting under the law. In 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to recognize rights of nature in its constitution. 
and it states in that constitution that nature has the right to exist and to be cared for according to its natural life cycles and ecosystems and to be restored if nature is harmed. Communities in the United States have been successful in rights of nature cases. There have been uh, indigenous peoples in North America implementing rights of nature. As an example, the Punkin Nation made history as the first tribe in the U.S. to implement rights of nature laws to protect their territory from fossil fuel extraction. There has also been, in the High Court of Bangladesh, they deemed a river a living entity with legal rights. The Colombian Supreme Court of Justice issued a ruling to halt deforestation in the Colombian Amazon, granting the forest status as a rights bearing entity, deserving protection and restoration. And then I had a, a really wonderful experience of going to New Zealand and meeting with Maori elders there where they were able to bring forward that their sacred river, the Wanganui River, is now seen by the New Zealand government as a living relative that is to be protected under national law as a living relative as, they, as you would have human rights. So I'm, I'm really excited about this idea, and we are working to promote it at the United Nations level, at local community level, all over the world. Talk about how important language is for building a relationship with the storied land. I've always been fascinated by words, not just their meanings, but their etymology, a word's origin and development. And actually, like the sound of a word and how it affects our senses, the word sound and how it connects us to our ancestors or to the land itself. It's so interesting because, you know, we speak and talk and see words. It just can seem sort of mundane because we do it every day. But it's one of the most powerful agencies that we have as humans in terms of influencing and informing our worldviews and the way we imagine and experience and actualize the world around us. And I'm particularly interested in how we can actually redevelop a more earth-loving language that respects nature, something that is part of this cultural transformation that you've been asking about is, you know, how can our modern languages share our histories and cosmologies and traditions in a way that has animacy and enchantment in it that can better knit us to the land. So I really enjoyed sort of these final chapters in the book of really getting into how worldviews and language are connected and how they can affect how we see in our hearts and minds the aliveness of the world and nature. So lastly, what do you hope people will take away with them after reading your book? I hope it opens up a dialogue. It's really a book meant to open conversation, offer other ways of thinking and being. And also I would say a sense of urgency as well, that it will open our heart and mind to realize that we all have responsibilities. We all have a place to grow as life enhancers to this beautiful planet, that people are excited about embarking on a journey at a very dark time in human history. I hope to bring people inspiration to learn more about where they live, learn more about Indigenous peoples where they live. There's a lot of information in the book about traditional ecological knowledge, a lot about language as we've been talking about, a lot about how we can research our own ancestries and remember the beauty and knowledge that come from our ancestors who lived in harmony with the natural world.
So I'd love for people to walk away with a sense of what they can do. Everyone can act and do something that there really is a shift in worldview that we're capable of and that the portal is right here every single day in everything we do, that people can feel heartened by how we can go forward together. It's a collective conversation and I really invite people into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Osprey Oriel Lake and that you get a chance to read her book, The Story is in Our Bones. You can learn more about the work Osprey is doing by visiting wecaninternational.org or ospreyoriellake.info. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments on this or any other episode, please email me at nordenpro at gmail.com. N-O-O-R-D-E-N-P-R-O at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, nordenproductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Tim Buckley, Buzz and Fly. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, Remember, we are nature.